All right, well, good morning. It is good to be with you. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at River City. Uh, grateful to get to join you for worship this morning and to open God's Word with you guys together here. Uh, we are in the middle of a series this fall at River City, taking a look at uh, the fruit of the Spirit, which is found in Galatians chapter 5. And in that passage, it, it, in verses 22 and 23, it highlights uh, the fruit of the Spirit as kind of a list of character qualities that are evidences of, uh, of a heart and a life that is being transformed by the person and the work of Jesus. And it lists these qualities of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And and the goal of our series, what we've been trying to highlight from the beginning is that the fruit of the Spirit is not just some list of virtues that we're supposed to be just trying really hard to work at attaining, but instead the, the fruit of the Spirit is, is actually something that we cannot produce in and of ourselves. Instead, the fruit of the Spirit is something that is supernaturally produced in us when the transforming power of the gospel takes deep root in our heart. And so, so as we examine our hearts and our lives each week to see where we may or may not be in line with the fruit of the Spirit, where our lives and our hearts might be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit or not, the goal is not to get you to think, all right, I need to work really hard at being more loving this week. Right? I see a lack of patience in me. I've got to suck it up and be more patient this week. I need to work hard at it. See, instead, the goal is, to, is not to get you to try to work hard to produce it because you can't, but it's instead to invite us to ask the question, what is it about the person and the work of Jesus? What is it about who he is and about all that he has done for me that hasn't yet taken deep root in my heart or that I've forgotten about? What is it about, uh, about who he is and what he's done that I need to spend time dwelling on and meditating on and, and remembering and coming back to? So that what happens is what's naturally produced in me is the fruit of his transforming work in my heart. And so we talked about how uh, from the very beginning when we looked at love, we talked about how it's only when you encounter and dwell on God's costly and sacrificial and selfless love for you that you'll become a person who's characterized by a kind of love that's not just when it's convenient or when it's easy, but when it's costly and requires sacrifice and when it's difficult we saw how it's only when you see the gravity of your own sin and how much you needed a Savior, yet at the same time you, you keep coming back to the reality of, of Jesus' work on your behalf, how much he met you in your need, and, and how much his work uh, secures a hope for you that you'll be able to have a kind of deep and durable joy that's not rooted in circumstances or in the experience of blessing, but rather is rooted in a, in a relationship with the blesser himself. We, we saw how it's when you realize that at the height of your rebellion, when you were God's enemies, that God, in the midst of that in Christ, he came to make peace with you. And so what it does is it produces in you a, a deep kind of a inner peace, but also a, a peace that gets worked out in the ability to pursue relational peace, even with those who are most opposed to you. We saw it's the degree to which you recognize and are humbled by how patient how long-suffering, how, how forbearing God has been with you. That will be the degree to which you are characterized by patience in, in the midst of difficult circumstances and patience with others. Last week, as we looked at the spiritual fruit of kindness, we saw how it's only when you grasp the magnitude of God's unmerited, undeserved, unearned kindness towards you, when you were ungrateful, when you squandered his kindness, that you'll start to be filled and 
by characterized by a kind of kindness towards others, a, an attitude of compassion towards others that gets worked out in an eager willingness to meet their needs and bear their burdens, even if they are ungrateful and even if they squander it, because you realize that's how God has treated you. And so this week, as we study the fruit of the Spirit, we'll see how in addition to love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, that goodness as well will inevitably and increasingly characterize us when the gospel takes deep root in our heart. That's what the whole series is about. It's about highlighting the gospel roots that produce the Spirit's fruit in our lives. And so with that in mind, let's pray and dive in together. Jesus, thanks for your word. Thanks that you are with us this morning. Thanks that you are here to empower me to teach and preach what is right and good and true with power. Thanks that you are here to enable us to respond rightly to your word. God, without you empowering us, without you being in the midst of us, our time is a waste. But we are so grateful that you promise to be with us as we gather to study. And so uh, we trust that for our good and for your great glory in all things, that you would use our time in your word to be at work in transforming us so that we might see and encounter your goodness and so that we might in turn be made good and do good for your glory. We ask it all, God. Amen. Amen. Well, like I said this morning, we are taking a look at the spiritual fruit of goodness. And I think if, we can, if we're all honest, goodness is not really the fruit that we get excited about talking about, right? Like you, you think about love, joy, peace, kindness, you're like you're cheering for those. You're like, yes, I know I got some work to do, but like I'm on the, yeah, those are good things. Like I'm excited to learn about that. You get to patience and you're like, okay, I see where we're lacking there. It's a growing edge. I can work on that, right? You know, and you get to goodness and you're just like, Meh. You know, like what is that? What is goodness even about? You know, I think uh, the reality is most people don't get excited about being good. We do, however, get excited about being bad. I mean, just look at the songs people write, right? Uh, Michael Jackson, I'm bad. You know it, right? You think George Thorogood, bad to the bone. James Brown, he famously sang, I'm super bad, right? But nobody sings, I'm super good. Nobody sings, I'm good to the bone, right? Like, nobody sings about that. And yet, ironically, when you ask them, the vast majority of people think that they're really pretty good. I think a lot of the reason that, that goodness seems kind of like a boring afterthought or just like a foregone conclusion is that we have a pretty anemic understanding of what goodness is really about. We often associate goodness with just like walking an old lady across the street or like just not getting into trouble, right? You're growing up, right? Your, your mom, she leaves you at home alone and she's like, be good while I'm gone, Right? And she comes home, she asks you, like, hey, were you good while, while you're gone? And you think to yourself, I mean, like, I didn't burn down the house or, like, kill one of my siblings. Like, I, I mean, yeah, yeah, I was good. I didn't really do much of anything. In fact, I was mostly just bored. But yeah, I guess I was good, right? You see, but that's not the picture of goodness that the Bible gives us. You see, in the Bible, goodness is not just about the passive absence of bad behavior, Goodness is about the active pursuit of all that is good and right and true, both internally regarding our character and externally regarding our actions, especially as they relate to the benefit of others. And, and so as we take a look at what God's Word has to say about goodness this morning, I, I think that what you'll see is that in contrast to the kind of boring, uninspiring view of goodness that we often have, I think what you'll see is that the Bible paints a picture of goodness that is captivating. That is beautiful. That, that's one that we can get excited about embodying as God's people. 
So, like I said, when the Bible talks about goodness, it does so in two kind of distinct ways. And the first of which is regards to our internal character. In other words, the Bible talks about being good, right? So, in the Bible, goodness is not ultimately rooted in what you do. It's rooted in who you are. And more importantly, it's actually ultimately rooted in who God is. Psalm 136.1 says it this way, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Psalm 119.68 adds, you are good and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. You see, goodness is an essential part of God's character. You see, just like water is wet and fire is hot, God is good. Those things never change. No matter how much water you have or how little water you have, it's always wet. Same is true with fire. It's always hot. God is always good. And so the definite, so it's who he is. It doesn't change. It doesn't diminish. And so the definition of goodness then is inseparable from God and his character. And that's really important for us to highlight as we study this morning, because I think for us, what happens is we live in a world in which goodness is not only seen as relative, it's seen as almost entirely subjective, right? Everybody decides what is good in their own eyes. And, and that's really not anything new, and neither is God's opposition to that kind of thinking. Isaiah chapter 5, 20, God writes, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Malachi chapter 2, again, he adds, You have wearied the Lord with your words by saying, All who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. You see, goodness is not a relative standard. It, it is not subjective. It is not what we decide it to be. You see, Proverbs 21.2 says it this way, Every way of man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You see, goodness is an objective, unchanging standard because it is rooted in an unchanging God who is himself the definition of goodness. You see, when Moses requests to see the glory of God in Exodus 33, God replies to him and he says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, he does just that. It says, he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, all these qualities, compassion, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, justice, that's what it means for God to be good. That's what it looks like for him to be good. And therefore, it is the definition of goodness itself. And see, the reality is, is that when we look at our own hearts and our lives on our own, on our own strength, without God, we are not consistently characterized by any of that stuff let alone all of it at the same time. You see, deep down, we are not good people. At the core of who we are without God is not goodness. It's wickedness. It's evil. You see, if you want to see that reality on display, just watch a season of Survivor, right? I know a, lo I know a lot of you guys like Survivor. My wife obviously likes Survivor, right? Over the course of the game, people do and say things that seem crazy, right? And they seem, that's not the normal them, right? At the, on the last episode, the last couple people, they're always trying to get everybody else to vote for them, right? And they always say something to the, it never fails, right? They always say something to the effect of, I just need you to know that's not the real me, 
right? That's not who I really am. I'm really, really, I'm a good person, and I would never backstab, and I would never go behind people's backs, and I would never intentionally uh, be subversive. That's not who I am. You see, but the, the truth is, is that what comes out of us in times of pressure and stress, let's be honest, when you're hungry, right? Uh, that's the real you. That's not the false you. That's, that's the real, that's, that's who you are deep down. It's the you that you got too distracted or too frustrated or too tired to be able to hide or mask anymore. See, but it's not just them. It's all of us. You see, unlike God, deep down, we are not inherently good. And the Bible affirms that reality over and over. Psalm 16, 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Romans chapter 3, 10 and 12, it echoes Psalm 53 and Ecclesiastes 7 when it says, there is no one righteous. There's no one good, not even one. There is no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Later in Romans chapter 7, Paul adds this. He says, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me. And that is in my sinful nature. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Verse 24, he goes on, what a wretched man I am. Jesus himself Response to the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 18. He says, why do you call me good? There is none good but God alone. You see, unlike God, we are not good by nature. It is not the default mode of our hearts. What is in us deep down is not goodness, it's wickedness. And in Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the, the parable highlights for us that, that admitting that reality Admitting that we are not deep down good, but that we are deep down, that we are wicked, that we are sinners, that's how goodness actually begins in us. Jesus says this in verse 9, he says, to, to some who were confident in their own righteousness, that's to some who were confident in their own goodness, in their, in their own status of goodness, he, and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable, verse 10, two men. They went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of what I get. But this tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. See what, see, what happens all the time is that like the Pharisee, instead of comparing ourselves to God to find our standard of goodness, we just compare ourselves to other people. We just look around and find somebody who we think is a little bit worse than us. And when you do that, it's really easy to say that you're good, right? That there's always someone worse than you. That Pharisee, he compares himself to the worst people he can think of. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a, I'm not a, a robber. I'm not a tax collector, which is just a traitorous robber, right? He's basically saying, good news, God, I'm not Hitler, right? So things are going great. You should be super impressed, right? You see, but better than Hitler is not the definition of goodness, Better than the worst people you can think of. That's not the definition of goodness. 
When we define goodness like that, it's like saying, I can jump farther into the Grand Canyon than you can. No one's getting across. No one's close. If you can jump a little bit farther, great. You're still dead, right? You're not making it. You see, God himself is the standard of goodness, and when we compare ourselves to him, it is painfully obvious not only that we are not good, but that we have an utter lack of goodness. We are wicked. And yet the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is good news for us. It, it offers us hope. Because while we see that, that Jesus says that the Pharisee's counterfeit goodness, his comparative goodness was worthless. The tax collector's confession of his sin, his, his admittance of his lack of goodness and his cry for mercy, that's where goodness begins. Verse 14, Jesus says that that man went home justified. See, what it means to be justified is to be declared righteous, to be declared good. See, goodness begins by admitting we are not good. That's the only way it begins. And see, and that brings us to the second way that the Bible talks about goodness. You see, externally regarding our actions, in other words, doing good. You see, because what we see over and over and over throughout Scripture is that good deeds, truly good deeds, true external goodness, it always flows out of a heart that has been made good by God. Matthew 20, chapter 12, verse 33 and 35, Jesus says it this way, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he says to the Pharisees, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks of what the heart is full of. A good man brings, thing, brings good things out of the good stored up in him and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. You see, true external goodness is there always a result of being made good by God internally? You see, without God saving us and making us good, we can never be characterized by a real, true external goodness. Our deeds, our good deeds without God are always a kind of counterfeit goodness. Oftentimes, most always, our good deeds are done out of selfish motivations. We're either trying to get something from God, like his blessings or his approval, or we're trying to get something from other people, whether it's their respect or, or whatever it might be. And so we do even good things out of impure hearts with impure motives. We are not good people. Unless God is the one who makes us good. And so the question is, what does real, gospel-rooted, spiritual fruit, external goodness look like? What does that look like? Well, there's a bunch of stuff in the Bible that we see. Micah chapter 6, 8 begins this way. He says, God has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. He says this, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8 and 9 says it this way, For you were once darkness, but now you're light in the Lord, so live as children of the light. For the fruit of life consists of this, all goodness, righteousness, and truth. You see, goodness is rooted in what is true and right and good and the pursuit of it and being characterized by it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 and 18, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to be put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Verse 18, command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. You see, goodness is about generosity. Titus chapter 1, 8, 
We read that a pastor or elder should be one who loves what is good. In chapter uh, 2, verse 3 of Titus, Paul goes on to say, Likewise, teach older women to be reverent in the way that they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Hebrews 10.24 tells us, Let us consider how we might spur one another on towards love and good deeds. You see, goodness is not ultimately just about you being good, but it always has a relational impact to it. It has a relational component. You see, goodness is not merely concerned with your goodness, but is concerned with the development of the goodness of others. 1 Peter 4.19 says, so, so those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. See, goodness is consistent even in the midst of suffering, even when it's hard. Goodness is not the icing on top of the cake. It is the substance itself. Romans 12, 9 says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what's good. You see, goodness is not only about doing good and loving good. It is about also opposing what is evil. We also see lots of examples throughout Scripture of people who the Bible describes as good. In Daniel chapter 6, we read about how Daniel, who had so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, it says the administrators and the satraps, they tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. And so goodness looks like it has impacts not just in our personal lives, but in our work lives and in our spheres of influence. In Acts chapter 9, 36, we read about a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, it says her name was Dorcas, which that is just tragic, right? Um, but it says that she was, she was characterized by always going around doing good and helping the poor. Acts eleven twenty four describes Barnabas as a good man who's full of the Holy Spirit and who led a great number of people to the Lord. We see in Luke chapter 23, verse 50 and 51, we meet a guy named Joseph of Arimathea who gives his own tomb to Jesus. It says in verse 50 that he was a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action, the plot to kill Jesus. He says he came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting for what? The kingdom of goodness is concerned with God's kingdom, not our own kingdoms. You see, when you look at those examples and the goodness the Bible calls Christians to, what you see is lives and actions that are the visible reflection of the goodness of God that passed in front of Moses in Exodus 34, don't you? You see, lives and actions characterized by compassion, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, justice. See, that's what it means to be good because God is the definition of goodness. And so to be good is inherently to reflect him. All of that we see perfectly in the person and the work of Jesus. Hebrews tells us who is the perfect image of God, the perfect representation of his being. And Acts 10.38 tells us who went around doing good. You see, the Bible, it makes a really big deal about God's people being characterized not just by being good, but by doing good. And not because doing good is something that saves us. Ephesians 2 is very clear. We're saved by grace, not by good works. But doing good is a natural evidence of a transformed heart and life. 
and because as well it reflects the nature of the truth of the gospel itself. One author I read this week, he put it this way. It's a longer quote, but I think it's so helpful. He says, when Paul says in Romans 12, 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, he is echoing exactly what God did at the cross. For at the cross, the goodness of God overcame all the human and satanic evil in creation by bearing it in himself in the person of Jesus. The cross is the ultimate expression of the goodness of God and the resurrection proves its victory. Goodness, he says, overcomes evil and that is the ultimate story of the Bible. That's the heart of the gospel and that is our hope for the future. He says, so when we respond to the evil in the world by acting in kindness and goodness, we are not only bearing the supernatural fruit of the Spirit of God within us, we are living in the power of the cross and of the resurrection, he says. We are anticipating the final victory of God's goodness over evil in all the world. He closes with this, just so important if you hear this. So you see then, he says, the cross and the resurrection are not just proof of God's goodness. They are also the source and the pattern of any and all goodness we can do as Christians. The gospel is the source and the pattern of any and all good we can do as Christians. You see, and that brings us to the gospel roots that produce the Spirit's fruit of goodness. You see, what we see in the gospel is that in the midst of our wickedness, in the midst of our utter lack of goodness, in our evil, self-righteous rebellion, a God who is himself the definition of goodness comes and he is good to us. Romans chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. I read this earlier. Paul, he, he wrestles with the reality of his desire to good, but his inability to, do, to, to be good without it. In verse 24, again, he concludes, he says, What a wretched man I am. No goodness dwells within me. He says, Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Verse 25, Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 and 8. You see, at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the message of the gospel is not that God looked down and saw that we were kind of good and, and that there was a little something he could work with and that he could add some goodness to us. The message of the gospel is that God looks down on us and what he sees is only evil all the time. Nothing that would attract us to him and yet because of his grace and because of his mercy and because of who he is, he sets his love upon us and he begins a good work in us. You see, not only is there no good in us, there's no amount of good we could do to become good in the first place. Alistair Begg, one pastor, he puts it this way. We need someone who himself is goodness to take the debit of our bank accounts of our lives before God and to credit to it all of his goodness so that his righteousness, his goodness might take the place of our filthy rags. You see that? You see, so often what happens is we look to our own goodness in comparison with others. We get self-righteous. We think we're good enough. But the reality is, is that there's no good in us apart from God. 
You see, and when you see that God's goodness to you in the midst of your wickedness, in the midst of the reality that you are like the, you are a, you are like the tax collector who is a wicked sinner and, who, and who's willing to admit it, you see Jesus taking your place on the cross so that you might be made righteous, so that you might be made good. What happens is that you have a reservoir of motivation towards a life of goodness that will never run dry. You have the power to live a life characterized by goodness, reflecting his goodness internally in your character and externally in your actions. Not as an effort to save yourself or to get something from God or people, but in response to the fact that when you had nothing to offer, when you could not save yourself, God in his goodness came and did it for you. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 8 reads this way, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, not because of the good things we had done, says the end of verse 5, but because of His mercy. This is a trustworthy saying, Paul says, and I want you to stress these things, he tells Titus so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. You see, good deeds, a life of external goodness, is always rooted in seeing God's goodness to you, in seeing His goodness made known to you in the midst of your wickedness, you see, in stressing those things, reminding ourselves about the gospel, about Jesus' work on our behalf, that's what we're doing every week when we take communion. We're remembering the gospel. We're reminding ourselves about his goodness towards us, which is exemplified on the cross. You see, communion, it doesn't make you right with God. It doesn't change your status with him or your standing with him. He is not impressed by how often you do it. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember to choose to remind ourselves about the person and the work of Jesus who, who on the cross in the midst of our lack of goodness gave himself, credited to us his goodness to our account so that in remembering his goodness credited to us we might be filled with the power and the motivation to live lives which reflect his character, his goodness inside and out, so that everyone would know not only that God is good, but that he does good to all those who are evil. So as we sing and as we worship, as we remember the gospel together in song, if you have put your trust in Jesus' goodness to make you right with God, if, if you are relying on him alone to make you good and to empower good deeds done unto him, then whenever you are ready, take communion. Maybe you missed the elements on the way in. You can grab them. They're on the table in, in the foyer there. Do it in joy as you remember his goodness made known to you. But, but if not, if you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to trust and follow him, what it means to rely on his goodness to make you good, then I want you to know you're welcome here. I'm so glad that you would be here in the midst of your questions and searching. This church is for you and these people are for you and I'm for you. But I encourage you, hold off on taking communion. You see, God's not interested in you just doing rituals. He's after your heart. And the only way to bear the spiritual fruit of goodness is when you respond in faith to his goodness towards you so that God might make you good internally.
And so receive him before you receive communion. Let me just close with this, church. I said this earlier, but I need to say it again. We are so tempted to look towards our comparative goodness with others as our standard of goodness. We are so easily tempted to look towards the goodness that we have in comparison with others, to to make ourselves justified before God. But like the Pharisee and the tax collector, Jesus says that's a pile of flaming hot garbage. We are unimpressive before God. Not only do we lack goodness, we are wicked people before him without his goodness credited to us. Church, might we be a people who admit that reality, who freely, willingly admit that reality so that we might, that we might stand in awe of the splendor of God's goodness and also his goodness towards us at the cross. And so that in response to seeing his wonder and goodness and his goodness made known to us when we did not earn it and could not deserve it, that we might be filled with a love and a passion for him that overflows in lives that long to not only be good, but to do good unto him for his glory, for the good of others. Because we see that's what he has done for us. Today, then, church, let's pray. God, thank you for our time in your word this morning. God, we want to come uh, and be honest before you this morning, admit that without you, we are not good. Deep down in our hearts and in our souls is not a, is not a deep-rooted goodness that just needs to get uncovered. The, the deeper we dig, the more we find selfishness and wickedness and all that is opposed to you. But Jesus, in the midst of our wickedness, you gave yourself for us. You credited to us your goodness so that we might be made good and that we might be able to truly do good. Not from wicked, selfish motives, but from selfless ones in response to all you've done for us. Jesus, help us to be a church. Help us to be a people who stand in awe of your goodness and your goodness which was made known to us in the cross proven to us in it so that as we stand in awe of your goodness and your goodness made known to us we might be filled with a power and a motivation to live lives made good by you who do good unto you for your glory and the good of others god we pray it amen